0: Edward Rutherford is the best-selling author of seven novels, including London, Sarum, The Princes of Ireland, The Rebels of Ireland, New York, and most recently, Paris.
1: Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. There's the sound of coffee. Sound of coffee. This means (laughs) when I've got got some coffee inside me, I shall even have a a working (laughs) brain.
0: Speaking of working brains, uh, I'd like to quote Ruskin via Alain de Botton in his The Art of Travel. I didn't I didn't know the interview was going to get this posh. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. We we don't like to speak down to our audience. Ruskin in his interest in beauty and its possession came up with five conclusions, one of which was there's only one way to possess beauty properly and that is through understanding it, through making ourselves conscious of the factors psychological and visual that are responsible for it, and that's the most effective way of pursuing this conscious understanding is by attempting to describe beautiful places through art, through writing, or drawing them, irrespective of whether we happen to have any talent for doing so. And that's exactly what you suggest that people do when they
1: visit places. Why? I'm very conscious of this, because when I'm starting, you know, uh, any of my books... Uh, sometimes there are places like Paris's that I've known all my life, but even then, I walk the place a lot. I let, you know, it speak to me, so to speak. That's fine, but of course, it's the uneducated imagination, and so you can have all kinds of vibes and senses of things, and that may come through in your description of place. Uh, A sort of osmosis takes place, and I think that's fine, but you can also imagine a whole lot of stuff that is really not there or not appropriate and so then you start researching sorry not appropriate to the place but i guess more to
0: do with yourself your own reaction to it
1: you know you could imagine that a place let's say you see a great walled city and you imagine it had never been conquered and actually it had been conquered ten times in its history Mm -hmm. you know so the research then starts to inform your imagination and then you do the two things together for a while uh, and that's what I've always done with with my books you kind of go
0: to the place you research the history Mm. you see what what your imagination does with it and you meld the two
1: together that's right Yeah. why is that important because it won't come to life otherwise I think that's the first thing speaking strictly as a storyteller Mm. it won't come to life if you if you don't feel it I've committed myself it's the rules of the game that I've set if you like to try to at least convey something and as accurately as I can. There's no such thing as historical truth, of course, except in the mind of God. But Mm. this perspective or interpretation that seems to be balanced uh, about a place. In other words, my aim is if you're a history teacher and one of your students comes to you and says, oh, um, I'm just reading this novel by Rutherford-on-Paris... I would rather that you didn't then bury your head in your hands and say, Oh, God, now I'm going to have to reteach, you know, get this guy's brain clear again. You are the ultimate literary tourist. You live and
0: breathe cities. Uh-huh. And then you actually turn them into literature. Literature is a rather big word for what I do. But anyway, I turn them into books. Yeah, turn yes. them into bestsellers, commercial. Yeah. You influence a huge number of people, right? And I think subliminally. I was thinking about this on the way over. You're writing fiction, so you can, mm. you can do whatever you want to do. But you are choosing to, because of this genre, this docu docu-genre, mm. Stick precisely to the record,
1: and that's why you do the research, but you're limiting yourself. I can play around in small ways, like having Hemingway in Paris when he'd actually gone off to Pamplona, because, I mean, he shouldn't have. Just one or two other little, little things. There's a fun sheet I put on my website as a competition to spot the deliberate mistake, you know. Totally trivial, not. not well, stuff. not not <laughs> saying, for example, that the Americans burned um, down a, church. Burned down a church. Yeah, is, is that, that's That's what yeah. I think you shouldn't do.
0: You can. You can do anything you want. But as you say, you're imposing these limits on
1: yourself, imposing limits on your imagination. I think it's on two levels. One, I think that filmmakers and others actually shouldn't do those things. There's plenty of... If you want to have people being burnt in a church, you know, you can probably find somebody who did do it. Well, the Germans did it to the French. That's one thing. But secondly, I'm, uh, I'm hit with a double whammy because having come up, which I did and said on my... I I don't want to do that. Well, now I can't do it because, of course, then it makes it far worse. Yeah, that's all right. As I say, I don't find that limits me at all. Part of
0: the ambition that you have is to learn about history, and this Mm -hmm. is a fantastic way
1: of doing it. Absolutely.
0: Again, I am a literary tourist. I uh, am going to go to Paris. Why does it benefit me to write about my
1: experience? It's active learning. If you want to know a subject... No matter what it is, you need to try to figure out how you would teach it. Also, I believe that history students should be forced to write at least a short story about the time and place that they are studying. Uh, because it makes you ask all sorts of questions. Okay, so what was it like when I stepped out the door? And by the way, was there a door? Is the street cobbled or is the street dirt? Mm-hmm. And how did it, what did it smell like? And what have I just eaten? And how do you cook? And how did it feel to be in a civil war? Were you automatically on one side or the other? And you knew? Well, maybe, maybe not. Maybe you were really trying to figure it out. Or Maybe you were, you were in a very difficult situation, and maybe your brother was on one side and you were on the other, as was the case in, for instance, the English Civil War or whatever. So it makes you really imagine what it was like to live in those times. And there's a lovely little anecdote. Can I tell quickly? Well, please. Oof. A lovely anecdote I was told by a professor, and it was about a guy who came for what they call a viva, or a viva, that's to say he was going to get a first class degree, this obviously was in Europe, hence the terminology, Uh, he was going to get a first class degree, but first they wanted to interview him. They had never seen any papers which showed such extraordinary erudition, there was really nothing to ask the guy, they didn't know what to ask him. And so finally, one of the professors, just to pass the time, said, um, Mr. So-and-so, if you were to walk from oh, London to Bristol in, you know, the uh, 16-something or other, uh, tell us about your journey and what sort of people you might meet upon the way. And the guy just looked at him and couldn't answer. And so then they probed a little bit more. Well, how did it, what was it like to be here? How did it feel... And they realised this man knew absolutely nothing. He knew everything from the history books Mm -hmm. and had no sense of what was actually going on at all. And Mm -hmm. he didn't get a first-class degree. Now, if he'd been made to write a historical novel, or at least a short story... Yeah, putting himself into that world. Maybe he would have learnt something.
0: Right. So... Being um, a literary tourist is about being in place and cities.
1: Why have you focused on place and cities? Probably because of my childhood. Um, I was born and spent my early formative years um, right in the uh, cathedral close beside the great cathed- the cathedral of Salisbury in southern England. Uh, my first walks were in a medieval town, uh, or even before that, just into the cloisters and into the, into the cathedral, where were these medieval tombs with effigies on them, very much lifelike effigies, on which you could even see little scraps to this day of medieval paint. That excited you? Put you, the, you in the time? To me, as a, from childhood, without mm. my thinking about it, the past, even centuries ago, was something you could just reach out and touch. It was real, and also long generations in my family, uh, a family who had, as it happened, at least on my father's side, actually on both sides, had lived abroad, and that tends to put you in a in a time capsule a little bit, you know. So. I had a sense very much of, of, you know, old uncle so-and-so, great-uncle or great-great-uncle, it doesn't matter, of real living people like the people I knew going back to Napoleonic times. These were all real characters. But they were set in, in my imagination, I never really thought about this before, but I think it's right, in this echoing place. And after going out through the medieval gate you know, into the medieval streets of Salisbury in the marketplace, where, still going on, the market's held on Tuesdays and Saturdays and has been since the 1220s. And it hasn't changed that much. Not that much, actually and then up the hill to the old city and old castle, and then beyond that, only a few miles to Stonehenge, 5,000 years old, as we now know. At that point, you could actually touch it, couldn't you? No, you can't. Exactly right. I can absolutely remember going into Stonehenge and touching the stones. So, if you grow up in an echoing landscape like that, I guess it gives you a very strong sense of place, and as I say, I hadn't thought of that before, but I think that's right.
0: One of the things that I'm finding with literary tourism, trying to think about why it's important, Mm. my sense is that it adds value to the place, which in turn perhaps helps to preserve it because more people will get upset if the wrecking ball comes around.
1: I think that's right. I think that's exactly right. And also, in the most humble, commercial, but very necessary way, at least if you're doing the, the job I've set myself, I know, anecdotally, I haven't, can't, of course, put exact numbers on it, I have brought a lot of people to Salisbury, because mm-hmm. they go to the guides and they say, oh, we read this book, Serum, and we're here to see this and that and, and the other. So, in that sense, I, I perhaps I'll bring some people to Paris. I, th- I expect they would have gone anyway. Yes. <laughs>
0: the idea then of researching a city learning about a particular place and then actually going to that place i wonder if you could tell me about some of those places that you visited that have
1: given you the most pleasure because they still exist well obviously they're the places i've written about and by the way we did we had not done it recently but we used to run little tours excursion tours for people and I would, uh, when I could, actually be the guide and take them round. And that was a lot of fun. It's funny. We were talking about informing yourself. Think of the Maya sites. It was really the excavations, you know, that that brought all that back. And then people started going there. And then after a while, in some of them, you know, the jungle started, they weren't being kept up properly. And the jungle started creeping back in. And so in the, that sense, the, this combination of academia and tourism was indeed preserving the places. You can go too far, no doubt. You, when you've got a great stone pyramid, it would take a lot to really do that much damage anyway. So, yeah, tourism and heritage go absolutely hand in hand. The, the, the rest is just good management, I think.
0: What about a place, though, for example, in Paris, uh, the research that you did, what was the
1: most exciting discovery of yours? I try to encourage people to, as well as going to you know the Louvre or this or that mm. uh, which is in the book but uh, I don't do a lot of, about the Louvre it's there b- where it belongs in the story but there's no need to do more I try to encourage them to go out to other places that I've found you know there's a lovely place well Père Lachaise is very famous not that many people go there actually the cemetery th- yeah for instance uh, very well known not that many people go there in fact and I hope I may encourage that Uh, It may also just actually encourage the guardian there to produce a slightly better map of the cemetery (laughs) than they have. Or, near that, there's a lovely late 19th-century romantic park, which is entirely man-made, actually, called the Parc des Chaumont. And it has this steep little hill beside a lake, and you go up a winding path, and there's a little Roman temple, um, and it's actually an old gypsum mine. But that's all been converted now, and what was the mine entrance is now a little grotto. And it's very, very romantic in a sort of Belle Époque style, you know. So it seems very picturesque. Uh, It's a lovely park. So, again, you try to... I try to get people to discover corners of famous places that they might not otherwise know. Rather than the, the kind of tried and true tourist trap. Well, they're uh, going, there anyway. They're going yeah. there anyway. Yeah, As yeah. I said, the loose in, in my novel Paris. Of course it is. There's a real
0: interest in what you're doing and what James Michener did. In fact, his novel Texas had a, a first-run printing of 750,000 copies There's clearly a fascination for this multi-generational
1: saga set in place. Why is that? And Michener invented that genre to the best of my knowledge. Um, And incidentally, when I had uh, wrote my first book, Serum, uh, I had extensively read and and as a writer made some notes structurally um, on Chesapeake, which is a lovely book. I think there's several things. People like to know more and nowadays can know so much more about their roots. So I think that's a big thing, both their actual ancestral roots and their cultural roots. And that then goes outwards. It may not even be your own roots, but the roots of places, civilizations, the roots of the world today. All that, I think, is just as fascinating to people as watching a National Geographic or History Channel program. I think that there is a real thirst, which perhaps, I, as a novelist, can help to satisfy, for history. Because history is not being taught Mm. nearly as much as it used to be i regret that bitterly i think it's shameful i think the fact that our politicians don't learn history it's like somebody um trying to um go on a journey without a map i find it appalling they'll get
0: lost and they'll do, they're doomed to repeat the mistakes and that's i me, I,
1: I had the great honor of uh, speaking a few years ago just to a couple of classes at um, west point and i said to them you know I write commercial popular historical novels but I try to get a bit of history right in them and I said history is reconnaissance and, and if you're going to go into a place it would be a good idea if you knew something about what you're getting yourself into and I said to them even if you go into a desert where there are not no people I would warmly recommend you to just find out what happened to the last army that went there.
0: Yes, <laughs> yes, yes, they and may s- have been swallowed by.
1: And I think that, interestingly, I think that the politics of recent years may have encouraged people in that sense that we really need to. History is not being taught as much as it was, or is it certainly not as much as it should be? And maybe we start, you know, we need to look at this again. And I think that, uh, that may bring people to these kind of books that I do. Well, there clearly is
0: a fascination with it, we, we mm. know that. It's, mm. I guess I'm trying to get at that fascination. It's about getting to roots mm-hmm. and uh, what your ancestors may have
1: done, but, but why is that so important? However large these worlds are, and mine are very large, they're enclosed systems. It's like going to a great building, it's like going into a miniseries. I'm trying to get a miniseries out of one of books now. And so you're going into this enclosed complete world. It's complete because it's in the past. It's complete in my case because it's not only in the past, but it's giving you at least a very large chunk of that place's history. Although of course there's still the break point between the past and the future. And you hope that maybe you can think about the future informed by the past, you know. Okay, so what kind of place is this and what where might it go? What what might it do? But I think the entering a huge echoing place, it's rather like Game of Thrones, you know. It's it's big, it's complex, but it's very resonant. I think there's that as well.
0: And again it's it's driven by what, wanting, not wanting to escape into another world,
1: but to understand it? Well, I think it's both. I think it's both, but I mean, I, I think it goes straight back to the the campfire, telling the story of the hunt. After all, think of the way people used in early Middle Ages, you know, to to refer to themselves. I am so and so, the son of so and so, the grandson of so and so. Who did this? The yeah. great-grandson of Rollo, the slayer of Bluetooth, the forkbeard, or whatever you like, you know. Yes, well, that's, that's the Iliad, too, isn't it? it uh, <laughs> it's very basic, and that's yeah. right smack in the middle of what I do. Right. So it's
0: telling stories to understand why the, why the heck we're here, and... Well,
1: and our sense of ourselves. So, your sense of yourself depends on the society, you know. It might have been that... You know, you were hunters, or you were warriors, or you were this or you were that. Uh, Yeah, I think that's very, very basic to all human culture, all human life. I do.
0: So that's why your novels are so popular, then? I think it contributes. What were you most disappointed about not being able to visit? Doing the research, perhaps there was a, a place where something very significant took place a house or a bar or a. and it wasn't there because
1: it'd been, you know, it'd been demolished or grown well, over. Or I wish there'd been a lot more of medieval London left, for instance. Um, the Great Fire of London destroyed much of that. Uh, Paris, as we know it today, is um, Baron Haussmann's uh, Paris, the great boulevard we all love. Uh, mo- not all, but mostly his. Some of them go back to Louis the Fourteenth, actually. But So, yeah, I wish there was more of medieval Paris to be seen. What there is to be seen, of course, is some of the best stuff there is, the Saint-Chapelle and all sorts of things. And you can get a feel of it on the Ile la cite you can get a feel of those little narrow streets. But I'm sorry that those old districts of Paris uh, are changed so much. Um, uh, Some of the things built on them, like the Place des Vosges, as it's now called, in the Marais is one of the loveliest squares in the world, a place I'm in love with and uh, uh, set some scenes in, in the book. But things like that, when I was doing the Russia book, there were a lot of places I wanted to go, uh, I was actually managed to get there in, in the end to a very very famous uh, monastery called Pustyn, where Dostoevsky and other people had gone and I happened to get there just as they discovered the body of one of the saints who they didn't know where he, his tomb was and they just found it the day before I got there, and it was a very emotional time for them, and I was lucky enough to be there for that. But there were other places in Russia Russia where I was not allowed to go, and I'd assumed that it was because they hid military secrets. In fact, I finally figured out it wasn't that. They were so ashamed of the roads, they didn't want (laughs) me to see them. It's extraordinary how primitive much of Russia was and still is. You know, you go into a big city and you find there's a, a main street which looks pretty modern, and the street behind it is fairly modern, and the street behind that, they're getting water from the well, literally, because they don't have running water in the houses. So those are the things you, you clamber about in places and discover some of the things they don't want you to see.
0: Just uh, in closing, let's say I've got two or three days in Paris, and I'm reading your novel. Where could I go to best get
1: the right vibe? First go up to the top of Montmartre and know, because you will know it from my book, that the hill under you is entirely empty. Uh, there's nothing underneath your feet, really. Then go to the little Musée de Montmartre at the back, where you'll learn all about the area called the Maquis, which was on the back of Montmartre, which is an old shanty town comes slum where one of my families comes from. And the, the, the Musée de Montmartre is just a little house. I mean, It's very intimate. Then go out to some of the parks. Go go to some of the outliers. They don't take long to go to. Go to the Malmaison, which is where the Empress Josephine, the wife of Napoleon, lived, Um, which is a complete... A very complete n- museum, too, to Napoleon and his life and her life. And unlike anywhere else in the world, go to some of the outlying parks, like Butchaumont, this little romantic park near uh, Cimetière de Parlachaise, the cemetery of uh, Lachaise That, again, uh, has an extraordinary atmosphere. And, and go to two other little museums, if I may, may say them. Well, not little in one case. Go to the Museum of the History of Paris, which is in in the Marais. It's quite close to the, if you like it or if you don't, to the the monstrous uh, Centre Pompidou. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that's called the Musée Carnavalet. And go to the lovely, on the left bank, go to the Musée de Cluny. The Musée de Cluny was a, started its life as a Roman bath, and you can still see you can still see the remains of the Roman baths right there. And then it became a medieval pa- palace for uh, the head of the big Cluny monasteries, and in there are those lovely Milfeu tapestries, the unicorn tapestries, mm-hmm. known to us all from Christmas cards or whatever, and they're beautifully shown in a darkened room with just the spotlights on the tapestries. It's pure medieval, sensuous, sensual magic. And then go to have a good meal. Do you have a recommendation on, on a meal? Well, it's corny. It's corny, but it's it's wonderful. Yeah. On the left bank, not so far from the M- Musée de Cluny, go to the uh, Prokop. Because the Prokop, you're in this absolutely pre-revolutionary, Eighteenth-century gilded Louis the Fifteenth type place, a place where Voltaire himself used to eat, and it's full of French people. It's not just a—it's not a—it's not a tourist trap, though tourists go there. Very French, yeah. I would say that's that's a good place to go. Very, or go to any bistro. Yeah, pretty hard to go wrong with the food of yeah. the Paris there in France. Yeah. They understand something. I remember many years ago. I've been told by my doctor in New York that, you know, not that I had any great problems, but, you know, don't eat too much cheese. So I'm having dinner with one of my French cousins, and they offer cheese, and I say, well, I'm not sure if I should. And my French cousin, that particular one, was himself a doctor. And he said, "Mm, you've been seeing one of these American doctors, haven't you? And I said, well, yes, I have, Jean. "Eh, you know, we have red wine. We have Eikovert. have some cheese. <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> now I've got one more question for you if I could. What can a city best do to make their cities interesting both for people who visit them and for people
1: who live there? It goes right back to this idea of whether is your imagination going to run riot? Or are you going to actually understand what you're seeing? You just see a building and it looks fantastic, but you don't really know what it is or what happened there, what was going on there. Uh, Once you know that, which is what I try to do in my books, then the place really springs to life.
0: Great. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much.